0: So, uh, I have the honor of giving the second in our series of messages on dismantling the patriarchy. My entry into which topic began like this, you can show the first slide. This is a picture (laughs) from uh, the little book that my mom used to chart my progress through Maplewood Elementary School as a kid. Uh in addition to having a picture of cute little me, uh, you can show the next slide, this focuses on the lower left corner. In addition to tracking things like grades and other reports and stuff like that, this also allowed me to track my adult aspirations. So, me being a boy, the choices, the suggestions that were offered were... Fireman, policeman, cowboy, astronaut, soldier, baseball player. Where do I have been a girl? The choices offered would have been mother, nurse, school teacher, airline, hostess, model, secretary. No. <laughs> All of these are admirable pursuits. And me being a nonconformist from the beginning, I wrote in some things. Mountain climber, football player... Aquanaut, the last of which you can. Sh- <laughs> you laugh, show the next picture. <laughs> this is me, nothing to do with patriarchy, practicing my best Jesus walking on the water. <laughs> this is actually, I'm a couple hundred feet off the shore of a Lake Superior beach on a rock. But what you noticed in the choices offered to boys and girls was a, a constraint, right? A clear dichotomy of kinds of choices. If you look at the the nature of the things I could have become as a boy or that were suggested to me, they were all positions of authority, dominance, control, where the women, the girls were all offered the choice of serving um, and with some other possibilities too which effect of being in control would have been magnified by the disparity in income. The male choices would have produced more income, the female less. Now I, (laughs) from a position of, I don't know, 40-ish years' distance, am quite dismissive of this. Bah! I scoff. What unprogressive, uninformed, unwoke, People those were who wrote those books, put those choices before me and my peers. I am better than that now until I participate in a staff meeting for our church with David and Adie. We meet every week to discuss all things church. A recent conversation went like this We were talking just as a, just as a topic about children in the adult portion of the service. I made the assertion, which, you know, I kind of took for granted as true, children are never in church with the adults. To which my wife responded, oh, honey, yes, they are. Sometimes there are, you know, plenty of places where children are in the adult service, which caused me to be a little bit more assertive. Honey, no, children are never in services with the adults. Which caused her to say, well, actually, honey, yes, they are. (laughs) And so now I am taking male offense. I know I'm right. I want my voice to be heard. (laughs) And even if I'm not correct, I want the world to conform to my incorrectness. So I say, honey, yes, they are. At which moment she turns to David. Now, David is really good at getting lost in his computer when my wife and I are squabbling in staff (laughs) meetings. (laughs) But, But sometimes he doesn't, and this time he turned to me and he said, Tom, children are often in services with the adults. At which three thoughts came to me simultaneously. First of all, I knew he's right. It's like, oh, God, he's right. Because my second thought was remembering my childhood, where for 60 minutes every Sunday I would sit in my stiff Sunday clothes on a hard wooden pew trying my best to dissociate from what was going on around me while I doodled in the bulletin with my brother sitting next to me and my sister next to him. And the third thought was, God, I'm in so much trouble. (laughs) Because... Because we all knew it. I listened to the voice of the man and not the woman. The woman happened to be my wife. And this is not the first time. This was a pattern of things that I used to think, oh, it's a product of wounding or insecurity or God knows what. But as this conversation that we're working on today has come to the fore over years, it's become clear to me how much... The voices inside me are the voices of maleness, the voice of certainty, of correctness, of needing to be heard, of needing to assert myself, of needing to be whatever, the last voice, all of these things. So this morning, I'm going to share with you a story where Jesus encounters that in spades in a group of men, what I'm going to call prototypical maleness. And I'm just going to call it that, okay? The patriarchy, the voice of the patriarchy, to which Jesus responds by taking a wrecking ball. His dismantling is not, you know, little piece by piece, it's we're going to destroy the whole thing. We'll encounter how men across the course of time have tried to suppress the anti patriarchalness of what Jesus is doing. Then I'll share a few things about what I and some of us in the church are doing actively, concrete measures to undo the patriarchy, to rebuild up something more of equity in its place. And I'll leave us with a vision, a moment that Jesus has prepared for us to imagine what this could be like going forward. So here's the story. It's one that I come back to quite frequently these days. And every time I do, I feel like it probably is the case I've made a little more progress within myself of being able to see what's really going on with patriarchy. So what God is doing through Jesus, I'm able to perceive a little more deeply. This is from the account of life of Jesus as told by John, um, starting in chapter 8. At daybreak, Jesus appeared again in the temple. And all the people came to him. And sitting down, he gave them instruction. So, imagine Jazz Fest here in Iowa City. When I hear Jesus speaking in the temple, I think of it like this. He's in an enclosed space. He's the lone speaker. There's a group of people listening. But the temple was this place with a lot of space for meetings and gatherings. Big, open courtyards, some large, some medium-sized But a speaker would go there, and if you knew that person was going to go there, you would show up at the right time and place. So again, like Jazz Fest, multiple venues, some big stages, some small, separated by enough distance so they didn't disturb each other, and Jesus appears to occupy the main stage. So a lot of people gathered, a very public event. And the scribes and the Pharisees, so these will be the men, Representing not just religion, but the maleness of religion. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and making her stand before everyone in the open, say to him, Jesus, teacher. So again, they're not just talking to Jesus. This isn't a council in a closed room. This is to everybody. Teacher. This woman has been caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, in the law, Moses enjoined us, commanded us, to stone such a person. So, what do you say? And just so we know what's going on, the writer helps us. And they said this to test him so that they might have some accusation to bring against him. So a profoundly, and I am going to say, infused with prototypical, patriarchy, toxic masculinity, traumatizing event, right? Many people have said, well, it's just the woman who's brought in, not the man. We know that in the way, religion, has cast aspersions on sex and sexuality, it really goes after the women in a unique and distinctive way. Men can get away with, sometimes are even celebrated, for doing the same kinds of things, for doing things sexually that a woman, if she even comes close, one drop of impurity into the purity of a woman causes besmirching. Okay, <clears throat> So these men have... <laughs> traumatized her, terrorized her by catching her, and then they bring her into the open. And the whole construct that they are trying to rally Jesus into is, again, I'm going to say prototypically masculine of maleness. What these men are experiencing from Jesus is threat. They have a way of doing society that produces a structure that they like, where they are in charge. They dominate. They feel Jesus bringing those they've pushed to the margins into the center. They feel Jesus undoing that structure by his kindness, his love, his equity, his leveling of the playing field. And so they perceive that as a threat. And the way they are going to address that is by reconstituting the society, by reconstituting the culture. This isn't just a question this morning about this woman, about what's okay or not sexually. Okay? They feel the competition with Jesus. They feel the rivalrousness, and it's an intense rivalrousness. And to preserve that, to preserve dominance, they are going to bring her in front of Jesus. They're going to reconstitute, essentially a court of law, OK? So they are the accusers, they are bringing an accusation, they're the plaintiffs bringing an accusation against the defendant, and they are asking Jesus to preside as judge. And so even our legal system, it's almost a caricature of these types of things, of competitiveness, rivalrousness, the desire for dominance, and then they bring into it murder, killing. Okay? Now we know that human beings, we kill each other more than other species that are like us, or close to us, evolutionarily. But the perpetration of killing is overwhelmingly male. 96% of murders are perpetrated by men. Okay. So the whole construct that they are bringing is <laughs> patriarchy, toxic masculinity. And what they are doing, again, is not just asking Jesus for a decision about a woman, They are asking everybody, you as the audience, us as the men, and we're bringing Jesus, they are asking everybody to sign up again. This is how we do culture here. Culture in this setting is characterized by rivalrousness, the assertion of dominance, the use of violence to perpetrate that and carry it forward, all with the validation of God. Moses as God's. Mouthpiece, spe- mouthpiece said this, so, so we get to do it. We get to continue to be who we are. You are all terrorized. We do this together. We rally together against the innocent victim at the expense of whom we get to keep doing culture as we've always been doing it. Right? To which, Jesus responds with one of the most iconic moments in scripture. <clears throat> it says, Jesus, however, bending down, wrote upon the ground with his finger. Now, those of us who've been becoming more aware of, in addition to everything else that's going on, the toxic masculineness of this, have imagined that Jesus might be writing some choice words for the patriarchy. (laughs) But the implication of it, Jesus' non-speech, I think, is that as he encounters this construct that they are bringing to him, that they are trying to rope him into, that they are trying to get him to say yes to, Jesus just has no words. Because there is no point of engagement of him with this system. There is nothing in this construct that overlaps like, you know, Venn diagrams of doing culture and doing human relating. There is not one point of intersection. And so there's no basis for speech. There's no meaningful conversation. Any conversation, any dialogue about this would just be nonsense. And so Jesus is saying without saying, there's nothing in here of me. There is no overlap between what you are bringing to me and who I am and how I want to do human relating. And so there's no basis for words. Words would be a sham. Words would communicate that there is something in this of me that we can talk, that we can work things out, that we can start from this point and go on from there. He has nothing to say. The men, however, the story goes on, Um, but when they continued to question him, so the men are like, oh, they are producing plenty of words, right? In the prototypical male way, Jesus, listen to me, I'm talking. You should be listening to me. You should be answering my questions. Jesus, what do you have to say? He stood up straight and said to them, let whosoever among you is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. And again, bending down, he wrote on the ground. And hearing this, they departed one by one, beginning with the older of them, and he was left alone with the woman before him. And Jesus, standing up straight, said to her and to everybody, Madam, where are they? Does no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go. And from the now, sin no longer. So men have been scandalized by this story ever since. (laughs) And I mean that, the men. The men are our interpreters of the Bible. The men are the producers of the subheadings of the Bible the men tell us what it means. It was actually a real question, I think, whether this story would make it into the Bible. Because to the men, the woman is let off the hook. She has done something reprehensible, and Jesus is just too kind to her. So if you look in your translation, almost every translation, this will be demarcated in some way, and there will be a little note at the bottom, this doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts, which causes you to, you know, causes it to be a little bit suspect. Um, But I want to read from the translation I read. I I like the translator. And this is what he says. Augustine, in fact, aware of the story's absence from many texts of the gospel, opined that it perhaps it had been removed because of the offense it might give to pious souls unable to understand how Christ could excuse so grave a transgression with no more than an exhortation to sin no more. It seems that the story was something of a freely floating tradition, perhaps with very deep roots in Christian memory, one that was not originally firmly associated with any particular gospel text, but that was inserted in various versions of Luke or John because it was too beautiful and too... and too illuminating of Christ's ministry in person to be left out of the church's lectionary cycle and hence out of scripture. But the men, undeterred, have told us how to think and feel about this text. It's called so many translations. I just picked a few. The adulterous woman, the woman caught in adultery, a woman, a woman caught in adultery, mercy for a sinful woman. So again and again and again, Our attention is focused by men on the sinfulness of the woman. And if there's anything beyond that, it's that she gets let off. Oh, she was shown mercy. So God shows mercy to a sinful woman. right? But really, there's one heading. The J.B. Phillips Bible. It says, um, Jesus deflates the rigorists. (laughs) so some guy back there in history was on the mark long before us because Jesus is doing a dismantling of patriarchy that's just unimaginable it's so through and through complete okay Jesus says this thing to the guys and again we diminish what he says you know um let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. Let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. So, casting the first stone, you know, casting a stone becomes casting aspersions, making an insult. Blah blah blah. What Jesus is saying is, let the one with, who's without sin be the first to launch a murder, be the first to launch a collective killing of this woman. Okay. And so again, we hear, oh, it must occur to the guys that they've done something bad that invalidates them as being able to perpetrate this thing. I think Jesus is after something a lot deeper than that. It's not just that, well, I sin, so I can't launch this murder. It's, do I really want this to be how society is structured? That we produce unity by creating victims who we harm or expel. Because I think the real point of contact is the guys thinking, oh my goodness, if we can do this to her, if we can besmirch her and because of that all collectively rally around and harm her and kill her, it's not just that I can't do that because I did that too, it's that I could be her, right? This mechanism works for all of us. And we know this, right? The, 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 the French Revolution, the people perpetrating one murder one day are turned on the next and marched to the gallows. It takes nothing. To cause a person to be this kind of victim. And so it's the older ones who, pff, the light goes on. Like, oh yeah, this might not be a great way to do human community. <laughs> this might not be a great way to structure society. And so, oh, it's magical, right? One by one, all of a sudden they're silent, their haranguing is done, and one, By one, they walk away. And you're watching this person. You know this man. If you're a man, you're watching your representative man who does the things the male way walk away. And you're going, I thought that was okay. And if you're a woman, you're thinking, oh my God. He's walking away. And instantly with each one, Your opinion of them diminishes a little bit. Your sense of their authority and credibility. You meet them in the market later in the afternoon or the next day, and it's a bit awkward. Because they are not who you thought they were, and they take the whole construct with them. All of it. The violence, the rivalry, the competitiveness, the striving, the desire to attain dominance... That, as a way of doing humanity, walks out of that courtyard with them. And what's left? The woman. Standing before Jesus. Holy cow. So here's what I do. We'll come back to that in closing. I just want to share a few practical things that I am engaged with to try to make this a reality in my life and in our community. (laughs) You can show this slide. (laughs) The first one is I develop, this is my personal, some of it's personal, some of it's us as a group. I develop capacity for the dismantling of patriarchy within me. My experience as a man steeped in patriarchy is pretty predictable. Every time I come across something that highlights my participation in it and how much I inhabit it and enjoy it and benefit from it, the first thing that happens is I get mad. Right? (laughs) So a few years ago, when some of the women in our church start to talk about the unfairness of God being uh, personified using exclusively male pronouns and that they don't like that, I think... Ah. Like, that's a bummer. <laughs> For you. <laughs> but it's the Bible. <laughs> and it's the fluidity of my language. You know, trying to use different pronouns, and instead of saying he, him, I have to say God, 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 gods. It's just, it doesn't flow as trippingly off my tongue. <laughs> But but they persist. And one thing I have learned, so I develop capacity to be able to sit with things like this. When you are the one who inhabits dominant culture, you don't have to, right? It's just who you are. Culture is who you are and doesn't ask you any questions, doesn't ask you to change or examine yourself. Those of you who are not dominant culture, like you have muscles and capabilities that those of us who are dominant culture don't. And so it's disorienting, it's disruptive, it's really unpleasant. (laughs) But the one thing I've learned through therapy, through prayer, through groups, through being a part of this community, the first thing is just to not talk. (laughs) When you want to talk, when you want to say something, you just just like, and you just don't talk. And you get through the other side, and you realize, oh God, that would be so hard, that would be horrible. That would make the whole Christian endeavor difficult. If it's of males, by males, for males, about males. So I developed capacity to sit with those things. It was really interesting. I started the the second one here, the Invisible Women group. The second thing I'm doing is I just started a group with guys in the church, with men in the church, where we are going into a book called Invisible Women. It's a book about how Men generate the data that produces policy, and so we orient our policy producing around the male body, and the male experience, to the neglect and harm of women. And so, there's a group, seven of us met in my living room this past Thursday night, Wednesday night, all of us. All of us have voices coming to us from the significant women in our lives, our spouses, our daughters, people we work with, Who are more than happy to say, hey, that was patriarchy talking. Hey, that was patriarchy talking. Hey, there it is again. And and we hear it, but actually embracing it as a construct that we inhabit, it takes more capacity, right? So developing capacity, having conversations. Uh, Some practical things we're donating to the Red Basket Project, Um, This is one too, where my maleness got the better of me. So the Red Basket Project is oriented around, it's a world without period poverty, period. The Red Basket Project strives to ensure each period, each for a woman, is met with products, especially in cases of personal or financial need. I remember, you know, we do a yearly giveaway during the Easter season to a charitable organization and one that applied was the Red Basket Project. And again, what they do is, for women who are menstruating, they provide products in public bathrooms, places like that, so that, uh, so that women receive what they need to do well uh, during that period of time. And I remember encountering it and at first being dismissive. Like, why? Why would we do that? Why can't women obtain their own products? Why would that be a public good? And then uh, I read this book, The uh, Invisible Women Group, and it highlighted the degree to which this is a real public health problem and need for many women. And more deeply, it just made me aware of the way men are dismissive of women, the degree to which women bear children. And childbearing, whether or not you actually bear children, make it through to completion, all the travails that come with women carrying our children, with women propagating our species forward. Just, I'm in a male body, and because it's a male culture, I don't need to pay attention that much or understand that much. And so just the, oh God, here's another place where I haven't empathized, I haven't paid attention, I haven't done what I could do to lean into this whole aspect of culture. And where my patriarchy has said thumbs up to that. So, we, 80 and I and our church are giving money to the Red Basket Project locally. The last thing is 80's ordination. We've talked about this. Uh, this will come up in a few weeks on a Saturday evening. Our, the denomination we came into being in as a patriarchal denomination causes a whole lot of things we just don't believe in or like anymore, including artificially... Inflating the value and meaning of men and diminishing that of women. And that affected the 80s coming into being a pastor in this church. And so we're going to fix that. We're going to do her ordination right. Celebrate her for who she is as representative of centering women here. So to close, I want to bring us back into that courtyard. I want you to be there with me. It's not like the people from that moment would have gone out and launched a society of equity. None of them had in their minds that as a possibility. They couldn't have done it. It would have been unimaginable. Jesus taking a wrecking ball to patriarchy, causing something to emerge from that in its place, and they all go, oh, this is good, I like this better. couldn't have happened. We can She can be here with us. What Jesus has done can be here with us. So again, (laughs) the men are gone. And with them, patriarchy, toxic masculinity. The woman is standing in front of you and in front of me. And there's this little phrase that Jesus says, from the now. It's not just from now on. It's the same phrase that, he, that, that Mary used when she realized, holy cow, the Son of God is in my womb. The same phrase Paul used when he understood the difference between before Christ and after. From now on, from the now, something has changed in an epical, cosmic way that causes what comes after to be different than what was before. So pray with me and let's encounter this woman, who she is, what she represents, what Jesus is trying to do for us. So Jesus, we hear you put the woman before you in a room in a space emptied, of the propensity to rivalrousness, the desire to produce dominance, the employment of violence as a way of producing unity, emptied of all that. And this woman, this former victim, now standing tall, liberated, exalted at the center of it. Help us to see her, Jesus, what it means for us, for how we do, human-relating society, culture. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.